between the ages of four to eight, you were excused to kids' club. And off they run. Calvary, we make a common practice of teaching through books of the Bible. That's why we're walking through 1 Peter. And we do it for several significant reasons, including this. First, we want to keep God's Word in context so that it's always clear that it's God that speaks and not the whim of a pastor. We, we want to look at what God's message for God's people looks like, not just my opinion for your life. Secondly, it gives all of us a greater understanding of the Bible as a whole. As the Bible builds one idea on top of another, thrusted towards an argument, that it's helpful to see the whole argument come together because it brings us to God's message as a whole. And finally, it walks us into challenging passages that you wouldn't normally choose for yourself. And I bring all that up to tell you this. This morning we've got a challenging passage that we would never choose. But we're going to walk through it because it's in the Bible and because we think there's plenty here to edify you. So we're going to step into that this morning. As we've moved into this series in the book of 1 Peter, Peter has been exhorting the church to submit their lives to Jesus Christ in all things. And that that submission go as far as to the point of suffering. goes so far as hurting us. So that in all things, it might be shown that Jesus Christ is the most important thing. That he's far more important than me. And he's far more important than you. And he's far more important than my ideas, my plans, my agenda. Jesus is the most important thing. And Peter challenges the church that as they exalt Christ, that they'd let their lives reflect his life, and thus knowing full well that it would cause suffering. And that they would suffer by being rejected, they would suffer by being hated, and they'd suffer by being persecuted. Stephen Neal, a man who died about 50 years ago, has written a number of missions books. I'm going to quote him here from the history of Christian missions. He said, in the first three centuries, when the church was spreading like wildfire, and this is what he says, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his life, testify to his faith at the cost of his life. That there's a vast understanding of scriptures that if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you publicly proclaim your faith as Alyssa did this morning, and it's probably going to cost you your life. In fact, this is still true in a number of countries. You profess Jesus Christ, you're signing your own death sentence. And while that's not really our reality, it is the reality that Peter's writing in. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we're beginning to see a shift. It's been going on for a while. Our worldview is being rejected. That if you want to claim the words of Jesus, if you want to proclaim the words of Jesus Christ, you will be hated. I've said this multiple times. You don't believe me? Go home, get on your Facebook, and write, Jesus Christ is the only way into salvation. There is no path except through him, and see what happens. In fact, try it now. I'll I'll give you a minute just to look down and act like you're typing something. Some of you do it anyway. I trust you're looking at your Bible apps. Our worldview is being tested. It's being rejected and it's being hated. And Peter has a word for us in a couple of verses in a chapter from now that goes beyond this passage. 
And in a couple weeks, we'll walk through it. In 1 Peter 4.12, Peter writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And boy, isn't that a word. He says, beloved, people whom I love, don't be shocked when the fire gets turned up. Because there's this understanding in the scriptures that it will get turned up. It will happen. So we can't be surprised when it does, as if something strange was happening. It happened to all the early believers. It'll happen to us at some point. Friends, the Word of God has been preparing us to walk boldly into a culture that's going to reject us. It's why in this letter he repeatedly calls us exiles and foreigners so we can continuously be built up in the reality that this world is not our home, that our acceptance is not to be found here, but with our Father in heaven who loves us and chooses us to be his emissaries, his representatives. This is why Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. For the same reason the Father sent the Son, the Son sends you. That we might live a life that testifies to the King. And that we'd give a reason for the hope that we have. That's where we've been walking through in Peter. And in this morning's text, in the midst of suffering, Peter gives us hope. That though we will indeed suffer and struggle, we will make it through. So turn with me to 1 Peter 3, 18-22. And I'm going to read this passage first, all the way through, and then we'll come back and work our way through it. Hopefully you'll pick up on a couple of the fun landmines that we're going to see this morning, and uh, we'll walk through them. 1 Peter 3, 18-22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience the resurrection of Christ Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So let me tell you, straight off, this is one of the most complex passages in the New Testament. You want to Google hardest passages to interpret? 1 Peter 3, 18-22 is what you're going to get. So we'll walk into it. It starts in verse 18. And verse 18 is like a softball. It's a lobbed pitch to a pastor. Because verse 18 will preach all day long through the night and come up again in the morning. You can preach verse 18 all day. It's the most concise statement of the gospel giving us in Scripture. Peter writes this, For Christ also suffered once for sins. So as Peter's laying out for you this path of suffering that you will suffer, he's pointing out that Jesus was our example. That Jesus suffered once for sins. That Christ's suffering was sufficient. That his once suffering for your sins, that the king came and he suffered for your sins and for mine. And Peter continues to say, the righteous for the unrighteous. That the innocent suffered 
on behalf of the guilty, that he might bring us to God. And this was the reason, this was Jesus' reason for his suffering, that he might bring us to God. Now stop for just a second. This sermon is entitled, Our Example, and do you see it? Do you see how Jesus is our example here? You're called to submit to Jesus Christ, to exalt Him, which we talked about two weeks ago, leads to our willingness not to repay evil with evil, but to repay evil with blessings, just like we talked about last week. And it comes to a head when we see how Jesus repaid our evil, our sin, not with evil, but with blessing, that we might come to God. Do you see the example that he set forth for us? Not just in his suffering, not just in his perseverance, not just in his endurance, but his mission. He was willing to suffer for the cause of the Father for our benefit. That's what's exemplary to us. Because the call exists that we would be willing to suffer, even innocently, for other people on behalf of the Father and for the Father's glory. That we would endure suffering. And in fact, we'd endure evil. That we would persevere as He did. That we'd endure just as He did. And that our path would point others to the hope of Jesus Christ and the love of the Father Peter pulls it all together here. You get the sense we could camp out here for a while. This will preach all day. But we've got some landmines coming. We've got some tough illustrations to walk through. Christ died once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. Friends, Jesus Christ died on a Roman cross for your sins and for minds, it is given now a historically, historically approved fact that he died. Very few academics even argue that anymore. He died in the flesh, and he was resurrected. And when we die, we will be resurrected. And this is where Peter chooses to illustrate this hope for us with an illustration that's rather complex. As we step into these next verses, I want to tell you this, and I forgot to make a slide, so he goes. Martin Luther in his commentary wrote this, about 19 through 20. He says, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain what at all Peter means. Martin Luther says, having studied it for his life, I have no idea what Peter's talking about. It's fair. You actually have to step into this to say that there are at least five interpretations of what you do with this next text. So I want to use it for a moment, at least to test us, to encourage us, to edify us, and to teach us. What in the world do you do when you come to a hard passage in the Bible? Because friends, they're out there. They exist. And we need to be informed that we have a wise, a smart and an academically verifiable faith. So what do you do when you come to something you don't understand? And I'll give you this first. You lean into the text. You trust the text. You 
read more into the text to see what it says. So when Peter continues to write, and he says, putting it all back together, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Questions arise, don't they? Who are the spirits? Why are they in prison? What does this mean? We lean into the text. Because the text shows us, it tells us, it gives us the answers. Look to verse 20. Who are the spirits? Because they formally did not obey. And Peter's telling us who he's talking about here. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, What Peter does here is start to illustrate a point for us. Now again, I grant you, I wish he illustrated it a different way. I got a lot better illustrations for him, but this is God's word. He testifies in here that these spirits, by the way, that is used to talk about people in other places in the New Testament. Prison is used to talk about people caught up in their sin So what does this mean? Friends, you'll find a whole host of people that will tell you and will proclaim boldly to you that this text means Jesus went to hell to preach. And I didn't emphatically tell you it doesn't show up in the Scriptures. Anywhere. And to do that is to miscalculate what Peter is writing and to misinform what he's saying here. The text tells us who these people in prison are. That they're people who did not obey during the time of Noah during a season when God was making himself known and showing great mercy, Peter articulates here that Jesus, in spirit, mind you, but according to verse 19, Jesus, in spirit, proclaimed truth to them, which is not far-fetched at all if you put it in the context of 1 Peter. Because if we go back two chapters, we were here not more than a couple months ago, in 1 Peter 1, 10-12, Peter wrote this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. Do you see the same verbiage? The Spirit of Christ is being used to testify to Old Testament people by the mouths of Old Testament people. And that what Peter is illustrating here is that God was using Noah to declare who he was to a people who would reject him. To a people who were in prison. And yet Noah endured. And Noah persevered. And just as God used water to cleanse the world in Noah's day, Peter continues with another, another illustration I'd preferred him not to have. Verse 21, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the other complex part of this passage. 
Friends, Peter's not writing here that baptism saves you. There's plenty of churches in the world that teach this. When I was a high school student, I had a good group of friends. There were 11 of us, and when we all went off to college, one of them went to an assembly of God church or college. And when he came back from college, he told us we were all going to hell. He said, Matt, why are we going to hell? Well, you've never been triple dunked. I've never been triple dunked? Yes, it's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it looks like a dance move. I practice that on the dance floor sometimes. But to appreciate that baptism, could it all be salvific, would be to put a work in place. That you must accomplish something. And in fact, the text even defeats this. Jesus defeats this when he looks at the other man across from him, the, the, the criminal on the cross, and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, well, let's baptize this brother to save him. Hey, let's hop off the cross, baptize you, get you back on the cross, and we'll all die and go to heaven. See, we've got to keep the Bible in the context of the Bible. We don't just get to look at little things and make up truth. Baptism is not salvific in any way according to any part of the Scriptures. But what Peter is writing here is he's pointing to baptism as the sign of salvation. If you look at somebody, you go, hey, is he saved or is he not saved? I don't know. There's not a sign. So the church institutes, it's instituted by God, baptism as a sign of salvation. That those who are baptized, it would be known throughout the community that you are in the community of faith. In our travels to Haiti, one year we had the opportunity to watch a church baptize some people. You want to see an interesting baptism? We should have done this to Alyssa. They dress these people up at 6 o'clock in the morning, put them in their white robes, and they walk through the whole city. There were three or four guys in the front playing trumpets. Why? So that everyone in the village would understand these people publicly committing themselves to Jesus Christ. You didn't have to be by the water to witness. You just had to look out your window. See, baptism was given to us as a public proclamation of our faith the same way that weddings are given to us as a public proclamation of our marriage. I didn't have to have a wedding to be married to Pam. Thankful we did. It was a beautiful day. We've got some great pictures. But it was a sign. It was a public statement that I'm committing myself to my bride for the rest of my life. Friends, that's what baptism is. It's a testimony that I have been joined with Jesus Christ. That's why he continues to say it's not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not just a bath, but there's something inward that happens. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. That as believers in Jesus Christ who have chosen to be baptized as a sign of our public affirmation of our faith, it appeals to our good conscience because it testifies that we're clean. It testifies that we're forgiven. It testifies that there's nothing we have to do Turn God's favor or his merit. Salvation is enough. We used to do uh, evangelism when I lived in Memphis. We'd go do a lot of campus evangelism. And from time to time, you'd be talking to people. 
and sharing with them truth. And at one point, you start thinking about it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And at one point in my life, that seemed like an incredibly judgmental statement. Until you start resting in the reality that none of us is good. Not one of us. And what that testifies to us is stop trying. It's not about your goodness. As if your righteousness could accomplish anything. It's about Jesus Christ and his righteousness being imputed into you at the cross. That's why he continues. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he brings us back to our hope, which is that we serve a living God who is alive and moving. Peter finishes this by declaring about Jesus Christ having died, having been resurrected, that He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. And friends, 18-22, through this is the significance of this passage. All the complex stuff, it's not about major doctrine. They're illustrations. This is the big stuff. Because what Peter is writing here to show you is the end of the story. That though Jesus Christ suffered for your sin and for mine, and Jesus Christ was crucified, and friends, there are a lot of people on that day felt like we lost the fight. And Jesus Christ was resurrected on the third day. Not as one who was defeated, but one who is entirely victorious, sitting now at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers underneath him. Friends, he won. And that's the example that Peter puts before you. That though the call here is that you would submit your life to Jesus Christ, that you'd be willing to take it to the point of pain, that it might cost you everything. It might even lead to your death. But the hope exists for you by looking at Christ as your example that you may die, but you will be resurrected. And when you're resurrected, having believed in Jesus Christ, you will reign with Him in heaven forever and ever and ever. Friends, these sufferings that we walk through, they seem like a lot. They can seem heavy. But they're nothing compared to the glory that's ahead of you in Christ Jesus. They're nothing. It'll be a wisp or a breath. I promise you, the most painful thing in your life right now, and I'm not trying to minimize it, but literally a trillion years from now, when we're having a cup of coffee with Jesus, you won't even remember. Now, I don't do say that to minimize your struggle. I say to maximize the glory that's ahead of us. Because that's, our, that's the finishing line for us. That's our hope. 
that's our motivation, that's our security, and that's our hope. That's the picture that Peter's painting here. That he wants you to know about Noah. By the way, he comes back in 2 Peter 2 to talk about Noah again. That God saved Noah in the midst of judging people. That we would understand that God is serious about judgment. That's the purpose of 2 Peter 2. That we'd appreciate that and that he saved Noah out of that and seven others. Friends, that we would be built up, we would be edified. And that's what Peter writes to this group of people living in a culture that's not theirs, chosen by God, called to submit to the point of suffering, even death, that they would understand that Jesus Christ is enough, that Jesus Christ will carry them, that Jesus Christ is their security, but that Jesus Christ is their example. That he doesn't call you to anything that he didn't walk through first. That he suffered. That he died. That he resurrected. And he rules and reigns in heaven now. And someday, we, his chosen people, who have called on his name and identified with him, will rule and reign with him for an eternity. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word every jot and tittle of it. Father, we give you praise. Father, there are passages we come to that we can misunderstand. Father, it's been happening for millennia. Father, may we have the courage to know that sometimes Satan wants to use those little places to discourage us, to distract us, that we'd use illustrations as the motivation to all kinds of heretical doctrine that don't make sense and don't align with your word. Father, that we'd have the boldness and the confidence when we come to your Bible to trust it. That what Peter is saying here is to exhort us, to edify us, to give us a tremendous hope. And Father, we can so often miss the point. Father, I pray that as a church, as a people given to you, that we would have tremendous hope in your son Jesus this morning. Tremendous hope. And that we would see him as our example. Father, that we'd be willing to exalt your Son so high that it would cause us to suffer so that other people might be brought to God. Father, don't let us be a people who get stuck and caught up in our own worlds and our own lives and miss the fact, Father, that you're trying to do something in this world using our lives. Father, we love you. We love you so much. We're so thankful for your son, Jesus. That he is our salvation and our example. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.